Washington is a is a human driven business, right? It's not an organizational business um, or, or an organizational um, culture. It's not it, it's not a process driven thing. It's all people, right? I mean, there's a old adage inside the government that personnel is policy, right? And the vast majority of folks here are working in good faith to try and make change and and to use uh, the levers of government to do that. On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. Each week, a guest and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Welcome to Data Proof Politics. I'm your host, Bill Shute. Today we're at Lost and Found, which you can find at 1240 9th Street Northwest. It opened in 2014 as part of a major revitalization of this whole area with the construction of the DC Convention Center, which is right across the street. But in spite of all that revitalization, it's in an area which is one of the few remaining spots where downtown where you can still find the old Federalist row house style architecture dating back to the early 1900s. Lost and Found has made a great niche for themselves by focusing on a great selection of beer, whiskey, craft cocktails, which you can enjoy either in their main room, which has got this great old school feel to it. I mean, while it opened in 2014, it feels like it's been here for decades because of the wood plank flooring and the exposed bricks. Or you can come to their alley bar behind the main room, which is a little more spacious, a little more contemporary, but that's where we are today. And it's known for not only its special drinks, but some of the special events that they're just starting. For instance, we're recording this in February which is around the world month at Lost and Found, where each day they're gonna be highlighting, showcasing a unique beer from some corner of the globe. They also have a pop-up comedy show. They're starting this Sunday, February 23rd, featuring local comedians who are on the brink of making themselves famous. And they have an open mic night coming up March 8th, where if you have an instrument or great voice or just a bag full of courage. You can stand up and test out your goods in front of a crowd. This really has a neighborhood feel. In fact, we're here because it's the favorite neighborhood haunt of today's guestbert, Matthew Cornelius. Matthew, thanks for joining us on Eight Proof and Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for having me, Bill. Appreciate pleasure. it. Pleasure. Matthew is executive director of the Alliance for Digital Innovation. Let's start by let me ask you to describe the Alliance and tell us what you're trying to accomplish with this. Good. Yeah, thanks again for having me, Bill. Um, this is terrific. I'm, I'm glad with what you're doing. Um, so ADI is a collection of currently 18 
uh, cloud forward commercial companies that are all trying to ensure that the best American innovation in the in the technology space uh, is provided to and acquired by the government to help achieve mission outcomes. Right, uh, uh, most agencies today, no matter if you're uh, the Pentagon or you're the Department of Homeland Security or you're a small agency like, say, the Marine Mammal Commission. Uh, you need technology in order to achieve your mission. Whatever that mission is, technology is doing it. And I've always had the belief that um, the best American companies uh, that are doing the best R&D and the best research and are developing the best products that have changed the way we live our personal lives should also be empowered to help us change the way we deliver services to citizens. I thought that way when I was in the government and, and part of my advocacy and helping to champion initiatives like that led me to, to understand and learn about ADI and appreciate their very unique niche. They're not trying to solve every problem. They're trying to solve specific problems and dig deep uh, and really ensure that um, when folks are engaging with the government, when you're, when you're applying for student loans or you're um, getting a passport or you're getting your social security checks, uh, or you're contacting someone to get an answer on any particular issue, that it's done with speed and accuracy, and it's done in the same way you get all of your services, your, your DoorDash on your iPhone, right, or, or, you're, you're, or you're downloading a great podcast that you enjoy listening to. Um, the government should do the same thing. So that's what ADI stands for, and that's why I'm there working with them today. Now, you used a couple of phrases I'd like to dig a little deeper on. The first was you described it as a cloud-forward organization. Define that. Sure. So, uh, cloud computing is a is a very different model of how technology is is managed and delivered, both on the commercial side and the government side. It, it used to be, um, without going too deep, it's you you uh, you have a data center and you have racks of space, and you as a as a business own all of that and you manage all of your infrastructure yourself. Well, cloud is different in that it allows you to use and deploy capabilities. Think about how your iPhone works. Like, not all of those apps are on your phone, right, or are sitting on your computer, your laptop in your, in your house. Um, they are in the cloud, and when you need to access them, you get them how you need them. You use them uh, however you need to use them. Um, so our companies range from very large multi-billion dollar companies like an AWS or a Salesforce, which most folks know, uh, to uh, smaller uh, service companies that focus on public sector. Uh, these are the people that are trying to think of newer ways to help the government deliver services. And then we have some very small and innovative companies, which have always been very close to my heart from when I was in government, because lots of the innovation and lots of the services that we are going to know and rely on in a year from now or five years from now are being incubated by these smaller startup folks who are really trying to solve a niche. And, and I... Uh, and I've always looked for ways to bring those folks into the public sector, right? It can be very scary to do business with the government. It doesn't have to be that way. And part of from what ADI is doing is both at an advocacy level as well as a practical level help demonstrate how companies can better engage and interact with the government and how their technologies can help uh, solve a problem or embrace an opportunity that the government's looking to, to take on. So this sounds like you're trying to apply the commercial innovation from your member companies to an organization that's reluctant to have a culture change to begin with, but has for 
decades relied on the old method of legacy systems yeah. where each, not every single governmental unit, sure. but one legacy system built for one or two yeah. particular purposes and then not even replicated, but created from whole cloth again in the next agency down the street. Absolutely. Yeah, the, I, I don't even, it, legacy systems I think is a great point that you, you make, Bill, but I think of legacy as a mindset, right? It is an operational model that the government has, has um, used over the past, and that is um, I am a program manager at an agency. I am comfortable because I have a contract that says I have X amount of people that do Y amount of work for me and it costs me Z amount of money. Regardless of the outcomes you get from that, it is a, it is a comfortable model where federal employees have, are outsourcing the work that they're doing and the capabilities that those folks bring to them. And you're right, it is replicated everywhere. And there are, there are lots of people, uh, most of whom don't live in Shaw, but are out in the Virginia and Maryland area, that make an awful lot of money providing that same service over and over and over again to the government, right? It is not about value. It is about um, getting that piece of the pie that agencies have. Um, from a technology standpoint, I personally believe, I believe that way in the government, I believe now at ADI, that the quicker we can get the technology into the hands of the people that need it to address the issues they need, uh, the better off we are. You don't need all these middlemen anymore. You don't need all these integrators. There are probably some particular cases where that works, but by and large, we are all technology consumers and users. All of our organizations, all the comp if you work for a company or you work for an organization like ADI or you're at a federal agency, you are essentially a technology consumer and user. So we don't need a lot of this middleman sort of business model that keeps innovation out of the hands of people that need it and, and slows down the progress that the government's trying to make in providing better services to citizens. I mean, we can go on and we may later in the podcast talk about, you know, why public trust in the government is so low and, and citizens have all sorts of, uh, of issues with, with uh, what's happening here in Washington. But I believe that one of the ways you could actually improve trusting government is by having the government actually do things effectively for the people that need the government to do it, right? And and, and my companies believe that, and, and that's why we're here, trying to shake up this model uh, and really uh, change the way the government thinks about, buys, and uses technology. So is this a situation where uh, an agency CIO or an acquisition manager is just not empowered to go out and look for this technology? I don't, I don't know that it's just that, and, and, and this is, um, it, it is that, but it's not just that. Um, the example I try and give is traditionally the way we thought about technology in the commercial space or in the, or in the federal space is there's a CIO in an agency who buys and uses technology or deploys it out to the programs or the missions or the services within an agency to uh, help them uh, achieve an, an outcome. Um, the, the paradigm that has uh, shifted is that um, the, the smartest consumers uh, of uh, technology are now at the program level, right? Oh. There's, there's, a bigger, there's a bigger customer base than folks realize. And so you and have- Your classic program manager. Yeah, exactly. Or, or you, you have someone that's on the front lines trying to deliver a service to citizen. And so between that person and any sort of commercial provider that's trying to deliver that technology, 
um, you have six or seven people in between them that have to take some sort of action, that have some different levels of incentives in order to make that happen. It's acquisition folks, it's evaluators, um, it's an integrator, it's, it's uh, uh, a CIO office, it's all of these folks. So take, and the budget. And, 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 the, and the finance person, right? Uh, and, and then you're always worried that Congress is going to like or not like whatever you do, and your auditors are going to like what you're going to do. But um, you know, break, breaking, down those, breaking down those barriers is, is so important. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of work that's gone into this over the past several years from my time at OMB. Um, you know, we worked on uh, a bill and helped pass into law the, the Modernizing Government Technology Act, which uh, was all about providing more money that's more flexible, that meets the needs of both agencies and citizens effectively. So uh, for, for those folks that are listening to 80 Proof uh, Politics, they probably know a little bit about the appropriation cycle and how this works. You know, every year, federal agencies get a year's worth of money. Sometimes they get a year to spend it. Sometimes they get nine months or six <laughs> sure. months or anything else. But all that money goes out the door or it goes away, right? And, and, and a lot of getting away from this legacy mindset requires money to be a little bit more flexible, right? Like if you're going to do these big transformational um, projects, you got to have some flexibility. So, so we established a fund inside the government. Congress and administration did that to help provide more flexible funding to do the kind of things that, that ADI is doing right now, right? And it's allowed agencies to establish their own sort of internal funds and allow them to manage those technology dollars better, right? So um, we're not just buying tech. We don't buy technology the same way that you um, uh, buy air conditioning for a building, right? Or the way you buy uh, chairs uh, to, to, to sit in. It, it's much more fluid and we have to make sure the way the government is set up to access and make the best use of that technology aligns with commercial practices. So it sounds like one of the primary goals, if not the goal, for the alliance is to improve, perhaps radically change the acquisition process at the, agencies. The, yeah, and, and the way that you go about doing that, so yes, that is our, our primary mission is to make acquisition move at the speed of technology, right? Um, at, uh, especially for buying a lot of these commercial products and services, a lot of the software that we need to use, you don't need years and years and years of, of requirements building and evaluation and compliance testing and all this sort of stuff. Improving the acquisition process is about demonstrating capabilities, right? It should not be re responding in, in reams and reams of paper to some long procurement document. You know, you sh a company that's willing to provide their services to the government, right, that, that see a public sector niche, that see a citizen service component they're trying to deliver through their commercial product, demonstrating that and letting agencies evaluate in real time whether that meets their needs or doesn't meet their needs is where we want to be. And we believe, we, we the Alliance believe, that if you can demonstrate uh, success and you can show that the commercial products we have available, that the members have available, address an 80 or 90 percent need that's in the government, that should be good enough to start moving out right now, right? And then if you've got a layer on security compliance or these other controls, things that are truly important to, to mission and security in the government, you can do that, right? But you don't have to wait until you get all the way there before you start deploying technology to actually address citizen needs. That we're going to get into your background a little bit later in the episode, but you really just started in December. So you, you've been on this three months, Yep. right? I'm sure you've already had the opportunity to put these ideals to work from an advocacy standpoint. What kind of tools are you guys using to get this message across? 
there's something to be said for advocacy by sort of paper and sort of normal communication, right? Like uh, you're reading the Federal Register and responding to, to rules or potential rules, um, responding to an RFP from an agency that's got an acquisition out. Um, a, a member of Congress introduces a bill and you send a letter saying we agree with this, we don't agree with that, you know, we'd like to come talk to you about this. That's useful and those are the advocacy skills that any 501c3 or 501c6 organization would need. Um, but for us, it, it's really the, the demonstration. I think being able to see it makes it more real, right? You take this from the theoretical, and a lot of what the government does is theoretical. You're thinking about big problems, right. and you're trying to come up with as many different solutions or, or solution sets as you can that might address that problem, and then figuring out, given all the constraints, budget and time and uh, uh, political will and everything else to do it. Um, our, our proposition is that um, you know, if we, if we can show you that, say, X agency spent five years and a billion dollars trying to get a capability into the hands of whomever's on the front line, right? I'm, I'm intentionally being vague because I don't want to, like, you know, rat anybody out. Sure. But if it takes that long in this particular case and uh, an innovative American company, like one of the ones that are part of the Alliance for Digital Innovation, can do that immediately... Uh, and solve that problem without all the complexity, without all of the, the compliance baked in. You know, standing that up against that, that allows for a that allows for a, a an objective decision making process, right? It allows decision makers, policymakers, legislators to say, "Oh, that's a better way to do it," right? We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I believe that the way the government's set up today is that the, the technology and the cybersecurity and the acquisition laws we have in place are good enough to do everything we need to do. You don't need new laws. You don't need to codify certain programs. You don't need all this bespoke stuff. The, the authorities are there to do anything the government needs. You just need the will to do it. And that's why I think the demonstration part is, is so good, because until folks have seen how things can be done, they're reticent to take that step. Yeah, I love this juxtaposition that you've drawn between response and demonstration. And there's obviously a need to do both, no matter who your decision maker target is. But it certainly sounds like from that answer that a lot of the reason you're focused on demonstration at the Alliance is because you're trying to deal directly with the decision makers within the agencies. You're not prioritizing what Congress is doing on this, but that's probably going to be a role. You'll have to pay attention to it. Correct. Right. Okay. Uh, by the time you respond to an agency action, the decision could already be made. Correct. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing I've noticed sort of leaving government and coming to the outside is um, the level of understanding. And it's not necessarily my members who are, who are all very smart, very sophisticated, and have been in this space for a while. 
but, but a lot of folks I've met and who work in similar roles as, as mine, you realize that a lot of these companies, no matter how big or how many government relations professionals they have or, or all the lobbyists they might have, um, the level of understanding of how things get done in government, especially in the executive branch, especially the agency, is is not as not as strong as one might hypothesize, right? And just to to be as nice as I can about it, and it's, you know. I, a lot of folks, when you're, when you're thinking about business objectives from a, from a commercial side, what matters to a lot of these companies, no matter who they are, tech companies, um, you, you know, any provider that might want to be in the federal space, um, folks, would, folks really love the getting a photo with a member of Congress, right, or, or really talking to a, a deputy secretary of an agency and stuff like that. And, and I get it. Those are great things, right? They're, they're important people. They're there for a reason. Uh, they're smart folks. Um, especially on the agency side, most of those folks that people think they want to meet, none of them have budget authority or acquisition authority or, or know what the requirements are for a particular program. And so one of the interesting things I've learned even uh, from, from just a few months of being, being with ADI is um, my role to help these folks is to help educate them, right? Is to say, you know, sure, we can do events, we can get our branding out, we can make sure that these high-level political actors uh, understand who we are and what we do, and, and that's good. But to, real drive, to really drive business value, to drive outcomes for your, for your companies, uh, and to, to, to help you deliver on um, your sort of core, you know, uh, company goals, these are the people that you probably didn't know about yeah. that really need what you're offering. Yeah. So let's find ways to engage with them. And a lot of this, a lot of my work to help my members uh, is to find out who the people are that they really need to know, right? Like all of my members have a slightly different reason for joining this group, right? Um, some it's more business development, some it's more marketing, some it's more dipping their toe in the public sector, trying to figure out if I'm really into this or not. Um, and so part of what I and my team do is try to figure out uh, who are the people they need to know to meet their objectives, right? Um, what are the kinds of engagements we need to have? Do we need to have more, more intimate conversations with folks? Do we need to have high-level policy discussions? Do we need to talk with Hill staff about things that may or may not work in legislation? Um, so it's a constant mix of, of trying, to, trying to ensure that you're meeting everyone's needs at all the time, but knowing that you're not always going to be able to do that, but it's that, sure. but it's that constant movement that is so interesting and, and useful and, and Washington to be a very small town yeah. is a very big place. No, so it, it's, you know, and, and that's a great, I have one more question about the Alliance, but that's a great segue to it because this is a small town in many ways in a many different levels. And I just have to ask, and you feel free to answer this or not, but I, given that AWS is one of your big, members. Sure. Do you have to be cognizant of this little spat that the president seems to be having with Amazon right now? I, I, I will leave the big P politics of what's happening with, um, with Mr. Bezos and, and, and President Trump to, to the in-house company folks and to the lawyers respected there too, right? But, but That's I, a very big P political. Yeah, I, I, I will say this, right? Um, we live in interesting times. And the thing, the thing you learn most in Washington, right? I, your, your listeners will understand this. And, and for all the new listeners that I hope we bring on, this will be an interesting point. 
is everything in Washington is compartmentalized, right? True. Um, if you stay in Washington long enough, everyone's been your friend for a time and everyone's been your enemy for a time, right? And, and, and hopefully you're always on the swing where you have more friends than enemies, but um, sometimes you don't get to control that. That's absolutely right. Matthew, you've mentioned OMB a number of times, and we haven't talked about your path to glory, so sure. let's pivot towards that for a while. Now, you have spent a lot of time inside the federal government, as you mentioned, most recently at the Office of Management and Budget. That wasn't your first gig in town, though, was it? Correct. Yeah, so I spent uh, my 20s doing things that were completely different than what I'm doing now. Um, uh, in, in undergrad, I was a drama major. Uh, I'm sure really? there'll be, sure be a follow-up question on that, and I got a great answer already baked all in for right, it. Right. But, um, uh, and, and when I graduated, I, I worked in a whole uh, bunch of fields that were totally not connected to anything in government. Um, I was in a nonprofit. I worked for a theater. Um, I worked in advertising. I did work for a tech startup. Um, you were in higher ed for higher education um, for for a few years back in back in North Carolina. The looking back on it, I'm actually kind of glad that I didn't come to Washington to to start my career. Right, I would have felt very differently, and I, I purposely didn't do that when I graduated uh, from UNC. Was it even a thought? No. Uh, when I graduated from the University of North Carolina, the 98 percent of everyone that graduates from there back in the early 2000s went to. Atlanta, Charlotte, D.C., or New York. That makes sense. And I was like, I won't be in any of those places. So I went to Austin, right? Yeah. And it's good. Well, I went to London for a quick snack because I could get a visa back then to do it. But then I went to Austin. And I was like, oh, this place is great. Um, so, uh, you, you know, I, I encourage folks that are thinking about coming to D.C. or, or being up here. Um, people always talk about Washington not being like a real place, right? Or like it's, it's different. It's a swamp or whatever sort of pejorative you want to make go live in other places and do other things, right? Like, don't just come straight from wherever you're from to here. And most people aren't from here, so they come from wherever they're That's from to here. That's a community. But, yeah. it's, but, you know, like, go learn and do things before you come here because I think Washington is enriched by folks that have different experiences and come from different places. That's what makes this this city and, and, and working in government and advocacy so unique and interesting. Yeah, well, I agree. You talked about going to Austin. Was that right out of undergrad? Yeah, so when I, but did you go there for grad school or uh, did you go there for other reasons? Um, I, I went there for other reasons to start with. Okay. Went back for grad school. I'll come back to that. And I've, I've got a nice plug for the for the uh, LBJ School at the oh, University of Texas. I've heard of that. Yeah, I bet yeah. you've heard of that. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, when I when I graduated undergrad, I, uh, I I moved to London for a while. I just got like a six month visa, and moved over there, just worked odd jobs. Just I had buddies that I played rugby with in college, and it was just fun. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I graduated. Your gap right? half year. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, exactly. But uh, when I came back. Um, I didn't know, again, I didn't know exactly what I wanted. My sister and her first husband, had, uh, he was in the Air Force. They had lived in San Antonio and Del Rio. And she just mentioned to me, she goes, oh, if you're looking for a place to move, you want to go somewhere, you seem like an Austin person. And, you know, Bill and I have an, an idea, for, for folks that are not from Texas or live in Austin or anything else, you know, it, it, it's a very independent sort of, you know, hippie-spirited mindset. You know, Boy, it's sure changing, It's changing. It's getting a lot wow. more corporate. Yeah. It's a lot more Washington than Washington is. But, um but it was fun. And so I just, I moved down there, randomly got a job. This is back when you could just pick up a phone and call organizations and say, hey, I'm looking for a job. What do you think? And, and um, got a job, moved down there, lived uh, for about three years. Um, like I said, worked in Zach Scott Theater down there, great theater if you're oh, ever in Austin, well. go see some stuff. Yeah. Um, and then helped start a nonprofit that kind of focused a little bit on, on arts, technology, education. And then met my now wife. She was working at the, at the Austin Chronicles. And then um, I wanted to move back to North Carolina for a little bit. I needed to be closer to family. 
Um, so, uh, you know, we moved back to North Carolina, was there for a while, worked in higher education, um, and really kind of thought that's where I was going to go. And when I was in North Carolina, um, this was back from sort of 2006-ish to 2010-ish. Um, you had the 2008 campaign, which was sort of everywhere, oh, sure. very, very national, right? Yeah. Um, big in North, in North Carolina. Um, so I was very involved down there. And then um, in 2010, I actually ended up working on a Senate campaign and helping out a Senate candidate. But I realized from that time, and I think this will lead back into to sort of getting us back to what I'm doing now, is the campaign life, the big P political life, like that's not me, right? It's yeah. great for folks that do it. Yeah. Every time there's election that comes around, you need people that knock on doors and, and organize and do all that sort of stuff. That's not me. That's not me either. I but get that. I, but I thought like the policy stuff is interesting. The way we thought about issues, the way we were planning sort of what a, a legislative strategy would look like, that was interesting. And that's sort of what led me to think more about going back to grad school and trying to do this professionally in a different in a different way. Ah, so it was the campaign that sparked that yeah. interest. Yes. Uh, it, yeah. Hey, it was it, it was great. It was great. It, it's it's nice to learn in your twenties what you don't want to do in life so you can spend your thirties and all uh, the decades that I hope to have coming after my thirties to figure out what I do want to do. Oh, you say so much time and money <laughs> getting to know that absolutely right so you go to grad school you get a master's of public affairs that's right all right yeah. and, and straight to Washington from there and then I came to DC from there so when I by the time so I went back to grad school in my late 20s and and, and doing that uh, I sort of knew what I wanted grad school for right it's like go in get those skills get the connections build a network get to Washington right um, and when I left grad school with all of the great um, learning and skills I developed at the LBJ school at University of Texas. I definitely wanted to be in the executive branch, right? I, I wanted to come up you and work. That. Yeah, and, and not a lot of folks I went to grad school with did, right? right. I wanted to be managing programs, working on things, and it's much harder to do that because the way the government hires, I'm sure you've had sure. plenty of folks on Hebrew projects about how bad the government hiring process is. I got, I just got super lucky, right? Um, and, and like we were talking about networks earlier, uh, had an aunt, that knew someone at the Treasury Department that had stood up a new office that got created when Dodd-Frank passed back in 2010. It's the federal insurance. It's the federal insurance office. Uh, is one of the three offices Dodd-Frank created. Um, and they just needed someone who could kind of do the policy stuff. They had the subject matter expertise, and this comes back to me never being a technical person, yeah, but being right. the, the outward-facing right. person. But they didn't have a lot of folks that sort of knew how government agencies work. These were people that were not used to the working in government. And that was the title, right? Policy advisor. Yeah, it was a policy that, that advisor. seems like a very generic. Term. Very generic. I mean, the Treasury Department so, is full of generic and stuff. So you were like a utility infielder. You had to be ready to move on any topic that was coming up. I, yes. So um, uh, I I spent a lot more time supporting the real subject matter experts when they were diving deep into policy or trying to write reports or trying to do regulatory work or anything like that. But none of those folks really understood how Treasury as an institution worked, like gotcha. what, what our public affairs function were, what our legislative affairs functions were, how our budget worked, right? They were just there to do real work. So policy advisor is a very generic thing, and it means a lot of different things. And, and we can come back to this maybe a little bit later, but titles in Washington mean everything and nothing at the same time. Absolutely right. right. <laughs> like, uh, you know, I'm an executive director now, and I have a lot of folks that make fun of me for that title. People that I worked with just three months ago are like, executive director? Like, what are you directing? And I'm like, I don't know. That's the title they gave me. You're, you're directing a bunch of executives at companies now. Right? Exactly. Or I'm trying to, at least. Uh, 
But, um, you know, so I, I worked in the Treasury Department for a while, and, and Treasury is a very type A, high-functioning, high-performing oh, organization. Great right? description. Ton, ton, tons of lawyers, tons of tax people, tons of uh, sanctions folks, and it was fascinating. I think it's the absolute best place you could start your federal career because you're one being able to learn from the institution itself i mean treasury's been around for as long as we've had the federal government right exactly. as the first department ever the stuff. first four cabinets and and to be able to do that have that institutional knowledge and to help stand up a new office within it gives you two very different perspectives right you get the you get to see how a mature organization works with a lot of political capital and influence and to sort of start a brand new office and figure out just how things function as an organization, which, which built on those things I learned in grad school, which are like, how do mature public sector organizations work? Like, what are the management skills you need? Like, right, what are, what exactly. The, so it's, yeah, it was this a, it is, was, this is organizational it, structure. Exactly. It was like playing yeah. tennis every day. You'd go from one side of the brain oh, to the other side of the brain, one side to the other. So it's fascinating. So you were there at Treasury at a unique time, standing up a new organization. Is that kind of what led you to the General Services Administration? So um, I got synced up. So I was at Treasury for about a year and a half. And um, when I was in grad school, um, I, I did my internship between my first and second year at, at the LBJ school. I actually did that at OMB, but not in the office I would come to work in. Um, those folks, the, the, the folks I, uh, that were my bosses when I was intern, they knew that one of their colleagues at OMB was leaving to go to GSA to do kind of the similar thing I was doing at Treasury, to start up a new office. Uh, kind of reinvent an older office that had been, excuse me, like hollowed out over time, but but was now more necessary because um, the Obama administration was focusing a lot on technology and and security and things like that. Sure. Um, and they just recommended me to to go over there and to meet with the guy that was going to be the head of it. Who ended up becoming not just a boss, but a great friend and mentor, a guy named named Dominic Sell. And um, the same thing that happened in Treasury happened when I was at GSA. It's if I would have applied to take on the job I had and it was kind of a chief of staffy sort of job for this internal organization, I probably wouldn't have got it, right? I was still very junior by government standards, sure. regardless of how much, whether people liked me or not, or whether I was good or not, like on paper, I would not have got it. But they had you know, special authority to hire me and I was able to go over, right? And right. again, every, everything with government is like trying to figure out what the system says, what workarounds there are to the system, and if you fit within any of the workarounds or yeah. how you can fit any of the workarounds. Great description. Just by chance, I was given a job to go, as a career person, to go work and support the political head of a major federal agency yeah. and to see what policy making and decision making look like at the top and not just from like managing a program. So less than, less than three years into my federal career, I jumped from the basement of the Treasury Department to the top of 1800 F Street. And, and got to see... And, a, and, and what's the that, That's the General Service Administration, yes. 1800 F Street. It's a great building, great great views if, if you can ever make it into Washington. But, you know, it, it's unlike most of the folks I went to grad school with, I got a crash course in different views of how the government makes decisions and takes actions than I think a lot of my other colleagues did. And it was all oh, just no by doubt. stance, right? And it was yeah. fascinating. Yeah, and then well, how did the transition to OMB? Yeah, so so that last year of the Obama administration, I spent a lot of time working on the various cybersecurity initiatives that were happening, uh, a lot of interagency coordination, a lot of acquisition issues, a lot of compliance issues, and spent um, a lot of my time as a representative of then uh, Administrator Denise Turner-Roth um, 
uh, working with OMB and the, and the National Security Council on all these issues. And the joke I like to tell is I spent so much time telling OMB how wrong and dumb they were about everything. They're like, all right, smart guy, if you know so much, come fix it. And so, and, and, uh, so I, I took them up on the offer, and, and, and I applied and started to, to, to move over and, and actually got my job offer um, uh, the day before uh, the current president took office. So, um, so yeah, moved over to, to OMB and, and started that next sort of three-year journey there as the current folks that are in charge kind of came on board and tried to figure out what they were doing. Yeah, a lot of people don't appreciate just how massive OMB is because it literally is an office that deals with the management of the federal government and the budget of the federal yep. government, both from the, the, the creation on the front end and yep. the implementation on the back end. Yep. Right. How could you possibly get your hands around that, even though you were focused on one particular area? And those two things are, are not equal. I, I always say, um, you know, if you're on the M side of OMB, so I was on the management side, they're the office of the federal CIO doing technology policy and technology implementation across the government. Um, most of the folks on the budget side don't don't care what you're thinking, right? Uh, the M side looks across government. You're trying to do these whole of government implementations. The budget folks care about their particular agencies or their particular components. And it's not dissimilar to, you know, any of the folks that you've had on here or, or you yourself that ever worked on the Hill, right? Authorizers want to authorize things. Appropriators yep. want to control the money. So it's that yep. same that same mechanism. The the thing that was helpful for me, and, and I always advocated for this inside OMB, is um, because of its awesome responsibilities, because it oversees the entire federal budget and the execution of all the appropriated dollars that come out, um, folks should not go directly into working to OMB. You should actually be at an agency and be downstream of the policies OMB puts out or the budget decisions it puts out, everything else, because you actually understand the guts inside of an agency for how it happens. So when I went over there, um, and was working on a lot of these broader technology and cybersecurity issues, I had already had time in GSA, which is the main technology delivery arm from a government-wide uh, perspective. So I, I knew the people, the decision-making process. I knew where, how the money was appropriated. I knew where, where, where money went that it shouldn't have gone and hid in places that OMB didn't realize. So I was able to build up a lot of trust across OMB. So even though I wasn't on the budget side, I actually got to tell these folks, like, hey, I know the decisions you think you're making, but here's some other things you should consider. What have you discovered in your short three months now where working to promote a policy from the inside is so much different than from the outside? Uh, well, for starters, if you, especially if you're not at OMB, um, you're a lot freer to speak what you think. Right? Like it's, <laughs> it, it, it's, so, it's so true. So, um, uh, you know, my, my former boss, Suzette Kent, the, the CIO of the federal government, actually came and keynoted my first board meeting um, uh, last Thursday, we, a little over a week ago, and was describing a lot of the technology priorities, both in the budget that came out um, last week, as well as sort of like her big initiatives here for the last year of, of the first term. And like a good, um, like a good government analyst, I'd already gone and studied the budget, and I'd found all these places where agencies had worked to establish new or, or modified working capital funds that could enable them to better deploy technology in alignment with the MGT Act. It was a very slow rollout in the way the law was written. It, it created a lot of hiccups that I don't think Congress had intended. Um, so OMB has had to work to try and, and give agencies flexibility, work with appropriators, work with authorizers, try to figure out this stuff. But OMB can't 
say that, right? Yeah, like, like right. it's it's not it's and not so easy to do. And that's a basic premise that we should probably at least explain yeah. because there is a. I don't know, prohibition, I guess, for people within the federal government, particularly within the agency branch, to advocate or lobby Congress to take some action. Correct. Yeah. And, and that's why you have a legislative affairs office that does that for you, and they want to control those interactions. Uh, they do to some extent, but, you know, some people always figure out how to kind of work around those, those barriers. But, um, you know, at OMB, and I, I won't be too sort of long-winded about this, but, like, it's um, the, the management priorities, which are so important – um, are always subservient to the budget priorities, right? And sometimes there's a juxtaposition yeah. there, right? Sure. And these big, hard efforts um, are not the same as, like, making sure the budget is, is enacted. So um, with things like this, so when, when Suzette came and spoke to us, um, she explained that issue on these working capital funds and the, the implementation problems with the MGT Act that, um, that she was seeing. And my members were like, well, what can we do to help? And then Suzette turns it over to me, and I go, well, actually – I've already figured out all the places in the budget that OMB is trying to move agencies in this direction. We can write letters to the appropriators and try to explain to them why this is a good faith effort from the administration to do this, why it gives them better, again, comes back to the listening. Appropriators want more control and oversight and outcomes from the money they get to the so You're budget. actually melding response and demonstration at that point. Exactly. Right? So, so you, can, you can take the needs inside the government that they, for whatever reason, they can't articulate but because it scratches an itch that my member set has, we can go and drive that message and say why it's good from our standpoint. And, and, and my members have offices in lots of different congressional districts and lots of states. So you have lots of other folks that you can talk to and, and explain why this is useful for them. And, and, and hopefully so, so now coalition has also included grassroots. It, it, it will. It, it will. Yeah. If I, if I, trust me, if I can figure out a way to get folks from my member companies to go and advocate for working capital, IT working capital funds in the government, boy, boy, would I be something. <laughs> well, there's a hot oh, topic right wow. there. Wow. You know. Okay, Matthew, as, sure. as we transition towards yeah. a conclusion here, I've got uh, a couple of random questions sure. that I wanted to ask you. And one of them is really more substantive than, than random, but... You're a North Carolina guy. Yeah. You went to Wake Forest? Uh, I went to UNC. University you went to UNC. Yeah. That's even worse because you're a self-proclaimed Duke basketball fan. Big time. How does this happen and how did you survive? Yeah. Um, so uh, I come from Yadkin County, North Carolina. I don't even know that Google Maps has found it yet. It is the smallest, most conservative county in all of North Carolina. Myself and my dad, I like to say, are the only two Duke fans, only two Democrats ever knew growing <laughs> up around. So it runs deep. Um, but more to your point, I, I actually went to UNC at a good time to be a Duke fan, which was the Matt Doherty era oh my God, when they yes. were terrible. Uh, Duke won a championship in yeah. 2001 while I was an undergrad. Um, but it was one of those funny things. You know, folks, uh, at first, they, they didn't believe me when I said it. Um, and, and then they got mad at me because of it. Um, and then they just thought I was, like, silly and crazy and that I'd come around. And they're like, well, we don't like it, but, you know, we'll deal with it. And, and the, I also think that's analogous to Washington, right? If you, if you can be a, a Duke fan uh, going to the University of North Carolina, you can be a, 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 wow. a, a Democrat working on any of these issues. I work better with Republicans than I do with Democrats wow. on a lot of things. But, yeah, you know, that, bipar that, that bipartisanship is. is not dead. <laughs> it's just weird. It's just weird. That actually, that actually is not a, a bad analogy to coming back to work. Is right. You know, one of the things I'm so... Um, uh, I'm so proud about and, and folks that I used to work with in government are so 
confused about when they see me now that I'm working for the Alliance for Digital Innovation is like something's different about you. And I'm like, oh, you mean like I'm positive now and I get to advocate for like good things versus sitting around at OMB and saying, don't do this, don't yeah. do that, this is wrong, stop, yeah. you know? So um, it, it's good. So my last question for you is not so random, but sure. very appropriate because you also, you, you have touched on this a bit already. You took that time off between undergrad and grad school. You took that time off between what you thought you were going to be doing and why you came to Washington. Someone who is thinking about that same sort of crossroads in their life, what's a good piece of advice to give them about working in this town? Uh, at, the, at the most base level, um, regardless of whether you know what sort of policy space you want to be in or not, um, Washington is a is a human driven business, right? It's not an organizational business um, or, or an organizational um, culture. It's not it, it's not a process driven thing. It's all people, right? I mean, there's a old adage inside the government that personnel is policy, right? And, and that is more true today than yeah. ever, right? Um, so. The, the thing I will say, and this is advice I would give that I, I, would, I should have given to myself seven years ago when I come here, is don't burn bridges. I mean, I like to say the only bridges I have left are the ones I'm going to have to cross someday, but I probably didn't have to burn as many as I needed to. But, um, uh, you know, we all, the vast majority of the folks here in Washington, despite what you hear on the news or your, people say back home wherever you come from, is it's not a bad place full of bad people. The vast majority of folks here are here to do good and if they can do well, and to try to make a real outcome in life. And um, they may have different ideas on what good is and what those outcomes should be, but um, the vast majority of folks here are working in good faith to try to make change and, and to use uh, the levers of government to do that. So um, I think I mentioned earlier, like sometimes sometimes you got friends, sometimes you got enemies, and those things change over time. But um, as long as folks know that you're smart yeah, and sure. honest and you mean well, um, that that takes you very far in life, much further than what the the letter is after your name when it comes to politics. So, um, no, I think you're absolutely right. And on that note, just remember, no matter what you think about the current state of politics in Washington, whether you think the glass is half full or half empty, I need a new glass. There's plenty of room to fill your drink. <laughs> it's, about time, it's about time to fill the glass. I owe you one. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. Bill, here. thanks for having me. Great to have you. Great. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.